Hi, I'm Laura Cox Kaplan. You're listening to She Said, She Said. Merrill is the CEO and president of Washingtonian Media, a media company that includes the Washingtonian Magazine. The iconic 54-year-old magazine is read by more than 400,000 people and is the winner of five national magazine awards. Kathy's parents actually started the company that she now runs before she was born. But her ascension to the helm came under sad circumstances when she took over after her father passed away suddenly in 2007. Since that time, she has expanded and evolved the company footprint to include additional publications, events, and a digital platform. We'll talk to Kathy about family legacy, the importance of community, the future of magazines, and appreciating and honoring history while learning to own your own story at the same time. Kathy, welcome to She Said, She Said. Thank you for having me, Laura. It's delightful to be here. I'm so excited to have you. You and I have been friends for many years, so this is a real treat. Yes, we're getting to spend some time together in our busy lives. (laughs) I know. Let's talk about how this all began. Was it inevitable that you would one day be in this role, even though the circumstances, obviously, that brought you here were very sad? No, it was not inevitable uh, at all. Uh, Both my parents grew up in uh, very modest means. My mother really uh, in, I I would call, below modest. Her father was a coal miner uh, in Scranton, Pennsylvania. Both my parents did well for themselves, got themselves educated, and made um, a very good, better than good life for themselves. And so when we were being raised, they would say to us, hey, we started with nothing and we did pretty well. We're giving you a great start in life, great education, travel, things. You have to go find your own life, find your happiness, find your own path. So it was not inevitable. However, as I got older in my late 20s, early 30s, sometimes my father would say to me, you might be a good fit for Washingtonian. I lived in Washington after college. I loved Washington. And so uh, it, it wasn't totally out of the blue. But at the same time, I was leading my life uh, doing other corporate corporate America jobs, expecting to do that for much longer. Yeah. Talk about what you were actually doing at the point in which you realized that you were going to make this transition. I was 37 when my father passed away. I was working for a very large government contractor. 75,000 plus employees. I was working for a man named Michael Huerta who just stepped down as head of the FAA uh, about a year ago. I had the great honor of working for him, um, basically uh, running Easy Pass mm-hmm. and helping run Easy Pass. We collected uh, $2.7 billion in tolls every year and ran it is uh the easy pass network is a a bunch of different government contractors but this was the one that controlled 80 percent of the network and sun pass in florida and part of fast pass out in california 
and uh, I was having fun doing that. It was a it was a great job, but it was a a big a big corporate company. Yeah. So you were living your own existence, as were your siblings. Were you involved at all with the family business at that point? So I grew up in Annapolis, Maryland, and we published the local newspaper in Annapolis, plus five other newspapers in Maryland. And my father bought those about three months before I was born. And um, that was always part of our life. I can't remember not going to the newspapers, not being in the press room, not being covered in ink. We would run around the place, uh, and maybe it was pre-OSHA laws, but we would start the presses, and we would, you know, just be everywhere. And it was really, really um, a big part of my childhood, part of my heart, and when we think about, when I think about leadership, this is what your podcast is a lot about, that company, which we owned for 40 years, was tragically where the five journalists were shot in Annapolis uh, last summer, about, well, about a year and a half ago. And so that was difficult. We didn't know, we no longer owned it, but we knew the people and we know the community. And, um, you know, that, that is where people really stepped up and we're really proud that the, just really proud of the people there. Absolutely. And so, but to directly answer your question, I, I was not prepared, <laughs> but I knew a lot about the business through the dinner table, through osmosis. We had that kind of dinner table that my parents talked about business and what was going on in the community always every night at dinner. Yeah. I have a hard time imagining how difficult it was for you at the point in which you were grieving your dad and you realize that this is what you're probably meant to do and stepping into that office his office for the first time talk about what that was like i also had a two-day-old um child when oh my, my dad died so <laughs> there was this Added, I don't mean to laugh because it was a very difficult time, but oh, it was a very yeah. added, um, an added complication. So I knew the team there because you know, when you run a family business, you know the people there. So um, it wasn't really as daunting as it might seem because I, I knew the people in the company. As I learned within several months, or maybe closer than that, it's very, very hard to manage people who you knew as a child who were older than you. Yes. That's difficult when you see a change. But I also knew um, my father used to use this Latin phrase that it's roughly translated like morta mano, I think is the phrase. It means hand from the grave. And he would, if, we t if he talked about estate planning ever, or you know, when he and my parents would die, you know, he would say, hey, you guys got to live your own life. Don't mortar mano, hand from the grave. You can't do the wishes of someone who is dead. You mm -hmm. have to do what is important to you and what you want to do. So I sort of always just felt that that was okay. And he was on my shoulder, you know, sort of saying, hey, make your own mistakes, do your own thing. I, I, as I've, um, now I've been there for you know, 14, 15 years, I do see in other businesses, family businesses, people trying to do what their parents wanted them to do. And I think right. there's more struggle when the parent is there oh, yeah. and someone's taking it over. I sort of had freedom and my siblings extremely supportive and that really helped. And my mother who was alive, also very, very supportive. Yeah. Was it, but was it difficult given the fact that your mom was still around so when you would make decisions about the business, 
how, you know, maybe it was a departure from the way that your dad would have done things. Was that, do you think it was hard for your mom? It was not hard for my mom. My mom um, it was al- almost the opposite. So my, my father served in, he actually served in seven administrations. Mm-hmm. Um, he would go in and out of government in some government roles, and my mom would run the company. And my dad used to joke that the financials were always better when my mom <laughs> ran the company. Um, and so it was almost the opposite. My mom was so worried about uh, sort of telling me what to do that whatever I did, she would say, oh, that's a great idea. That's a great idea. You're so smart. That's a, And I'd be like, no, mom, seriously, tell Tell me, <laughs> tell me I'm screwing up. But she wouldn't, she just wanted to be a supportive mom. She would not criticize at all, even when I asked for it. So that was, um, that wasn't really a challenge. The challenge was when people would say this phrase that really got under my skin, which was, your father would never have done that. Mm. Um, that's really hard. And it's hard to not snap back at you know, someone, well, he's not here, or right. well, he's dead, and you know, you kind of thing, um, and find the right balance of, you know, how to, how to answer that, that yeah. comment. Talk about or provide advice to our listeners for what you, you know, how you evolved and how you dealt with that situation. You alluded to the fact that you were very young coming into the role. So you had, there's a number of different factors, right? You were young. You were, you were uh, becoming um, the boss of people who had known you since you were ch- a child or even before yeah. you were born, right? All the dynamics associated with that. Give us some perspective on sort of advice that you would give for others who might find themselves in a similar, similar circumstance. I know this sounds so cliche, but it really is trust your gut trust your gut, trust your gut, and um, get involved where you want to get involved. I get, even to this day, I get very, very involved in whatever is the cover of the magazine. My father didn't get involved. He left it to the art director and the editor and didn't, I mean, this is a tiny example. I got very involved in one of my first covers. There was, um, it was actually um, two women on an Adirondacks chair, I'll never forget, and one of the women had like what I deem to be like a very ugly, unfashionable sweater. <laughs> I was like, we need a we need a different sweater. We need to color the sweater. We need to do something. And everyone looked at me like I was insane. It's a sweater and a picture on it, but I cared because I wanted it to reflect the brand, a new brand, to be more current. And so I just started digging in there where I wanted to dig in. So it really was trust your gut. Managing people is hard no matter what. And managing people you've known is, uh, I think it it's no different managing them because you want to be honest and upfront with people. It's harder to read them perhaps because it takes a little longer if you think of um, any of your friend's parents, you think of them as Mr. and Mrs. Whoever. You don't think of Mr. Whoever, your best friend's dad, as someone who has strengths and weaknesses. You just think of them as, you know, Mr. Jones. And so, um, figuring that out was a little was a little more challenging. It was just different in every case. Um, and unfortunately, having to let some people go was because I took over right before the recession. Right. So you know, like everyone, we had to we had to pull back, and um, it, it, you know, it was hard and painful, and I lost a lot of sleep over it. Yeah. You've evolved the 
the company, not so much the brand, but you've evolved the company and expanded the footprint of the business. Talk a little bit about some of the other ways that you've changed the family business. So when my father passed away, we had five newspapers in Maryland and actually some real estate company as well, which which I sold upon his death and kept the magazine. But the magazine was part of a, of a bigger company. I mean, that company had four, three or 400 employees, and this was you know, 60 employees. So I knew that it wasn't going to survive as one on its own with just one magazine. And so uh, it was doubling down on the web. It was launching a wedding magazine, launching a visitor's guide, doing custom media events. We had never done events. So we did, you know, we did an event with sponsorship that went really well and um, I was very lucky to have good counsel I'm someone who believes very strongly in asking for advice and asking for advice from uh, the right person at the right time I think that is a key um, to anyone's success is I think a lot of people know to ask for help the uh, challenging part is knowing who to ask what help for you know, if I have a, a mothering question, a question, a parenting question, I'll ask people I think are great parents. If I have a magazine question, I ask people who I think are very good magazine owners. If I have a question about um, charity or, or, you know, anything else, a personal challenge, I might go ask a different CEO. So I asked a lot of people questions. And frankly, when I took over, I had a lot, a lot of breakfasts and lunches. A lot of people called to say, can I take you out to breakfast or lunch? And I said yes to every single one because I, I, I wanted to hear what people had to say. Mm -hmm. Do you develop a go-to set of a finite number of people who you are constantly bouncing ideas off of? Or are you just constantly sort of whatever the question is, you go to the person who you think is the best expert? What's your advice for other people on whether you call it mentorship or whether you just call it getting good counsel, how do you approach that? I approach it the the latter. It, I have a question. I think to myself, who would be a good person to answer this? Who do I think is the smartest person in this field with the best advice? And I go to that person. Now, like everybody, there's certain people who are just really good across all fields. So those tend to be on, you know, your mentors that you call a lot. But I always think who has been through it, similar challenge, or who has something interesting to say. And then I might counter it with somebody, with somebody else because you want more than one more than one piece of advice. Yeah, yeah. I've heard you say that feedback for you is something that was kind of hardwired because of the just the nature of the family that you grew up in. You guys were in the newspaper business. People were always giving you and your family feedback, whether yes. you wanted it and asked for it or not. Talk a little bit about that experience and how receiving that unwanted feedback, perhaps, actually shaped you and maybe made you a little bit more nimble in terms of, you know, it's hard, it can be hard to hear negative feedback. So talk about these. Well, I think growing up, if anyone who grew up in a small town knows the power of a newspaper in a small town. So, you know, we're, we went to high school, people knew my family published the newspaper and they would walk up in the halls and complain that, 
you know, we spelled their name wrong in the JV lacrosse game and um, they scored a goal and we spelled Stein, S-T-E-I-N or I-E-N or whatever the, you know, something. And I started out, I would say, you should check the roster because they actually take a photo of the lacrosse roster. You know, the newspaper doesn't know every JV lacrosse player in the county. (laughs) And people would get really mad and say, no, 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 my coach knows how to spell my name. You know, that was when I was sort of in middle school. And by the time I got to high school, they would complain and I would say, oh my God, I'm so sorry. I, I, we, I will let my father know that we spelled your name wrong. Um, but you might just consider checking the roster. <laughs> and then people took the feedback better. So I think learning how to respond to it is one thing. Uh, feedback, taking it, because people, a lot of people have legitimate complaints about things. And I would hear my father say, tell me about that. Tell me. And, and I have no fear at all of saying I screwed up. Like, hey, we messed up. We made a mistake. If you were in the publishing business, and I think this is fundamentally different than other businesses, all publishing businesses have correction pages. Print, now they do it online. You get used to correcting things. Here's the correction. We made a mistake. So I'm very, very good about both taking feedback, about saying we screwed up. The kind of feedback I think that's hard for everybody is personal feedback. <laughs> and so Especially if it's just negative or outright critical and not necessarily constructive. Well, I think there's I, I think most feedback is constructive. I mean, and I was lucky. I was a partner in a management consulting firm for seven years where we had very formal reviews. And I think there's two kinds of feedback, and I try to do this with my own people, is there is skill set feedback, like, hey, Laura, you, you need to learn numbers better. I mean, not you personally. I know you, PwC, <laughs> you know your numbers. But somebody, I want you to get more experience making financial models, or I want you to cross work with this department over here. Those are skills. Feedback that's harder is, you know, telling a shy person that, hey, you're, you're isolating yourself from the office, or giving people personal feedback, or, hey, you're you're eating up too much air in a meeting or your style is abrasive. It's both harder to tell people, it's harder to hear, and it's harder to change. Mm-hmm. But you, people need to separate those two different kinds of, of feedback. Yeah. What about not taking just criticism to heart? We are in a, a very challenging period, let's say, in which people seem to not feel any boundaries about just saying whatever vile, vicious thing might cross their mind. It's certainly not true of everybody, certainly. But many people are much more comfortable with that um, on Twitter, on various social platforms. How do you deal with stuff like that? You must get it. Everybody does. Every, <laughs> every, <laughs> no every, one's immune no one is No <laughs> one is immune to criticism, whether it is, you know, something, something we say, um, it's funny you say that I faced, we had our big tech titans uh, event where we have all the tech leaders in the, you know, in the region. And um, I I tweeted a picture and it got criticism because uh, it was me with a, a group of Indian, um, Indian guys who were my friends who happened to run companies and I was said I was proudly with them. And then I got criticized for leaving out non-Indians. It was a photo. <laughs> I mean, this kind of thing. I, 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 you know, I think the secret is is to not let it bother you, and to move on. And what's coming up the next day? I don't think there's any real secret sauce there. Um, and 
to be able to separate legit criticism from non-legit criticism. Maybe that's the secret sauce. When someone criticizes me like that instance where, uh, you know, I know that they don't understand the event and what was going on and what I was trying to portray, it doesn't bother me. Legit criticism, um, hopefully you can take it, absorb it, and see what you can do differently. Yeah, yeah. Let's talk a bit about the culture in the organization that you have tried to maybe maintain the culture that you've tried to create on your own, what your vision is for that. Talk a little bit about that. Uh, I love Washingtonians culture. It is such a collaborative, wonderful place to work. And I knew that when I got there. So um, I have just wanted to grow it and expand it and not mess it up has been my main you know, my main purpose and goal. Um, the vision, Washingtonian, whether whatever format you read us on, whether it is in a tweet online, um, on, you know, on, on, on the web, in the magazine, at an event, we are all about two things. And they haven't changed. Even in this communications revolution, they haven't changed. How to get the best out of Washington. So this is your best restaurants, best top doctors, you know, all of the, the top and the best lists, things to do this weekend, where to go, what to do, and also how Washington works. So insightful articles into how, how, our, how our region works. The, um, there's a great piece in this month's magazine about uh, civil war in Reston, basically Reston on whether it should be more developed or less developed given the, uh, the guy who founded Reston, Virginia. That is a real insight into what's going on in our community. That hasn't changed. And mm -hmm. we try to every day make sure that everything we do reaches a level of excellence and answers one of those two imperatives. Yeah. You have told a story, and because you and I have known each other a long time, you've spoken to my intern <laughs> groups when I was at PwC, <laughs> and I've heard you tell this great story about the importance of getting the small things right. So the chocolate chip cookie the test. The chocolate chip cookie test, which I love. I want you to tell that story and, so, why, and sort of how that underpins kind of what you think about as it relates to the culture. I the tell magazine. this to our all of our interns and every new employee that comes into the magazine. Um, in the 1970s, we did a taste of chocolate chip cookies, uh, and we rated the best and worst cookies. Now people don't do so much worst. Back then, everybody did best and worst. And... Um, Giant Food, the large grocery chain here in Washington, D.C., their cookies came out worst. They were the number one seller of, of our magazines and also the number one advertiser of our newspaper. Mm -hmm. So they were you know, our biggest customer by a lot. And we put in that their cookies were worst. And the guy who founded Giant Food, a guy by the name of Izzy Cohen, called my father. My, my father had never met him. And he hears Izzy Cohen's on the phone. And Izzy says to him, hey, I just got my Washingtonian. And you said that our chocolate chip cookies are the worst. You know, we are very proud of our Heidi bakeries. We have poured millions and millions of dollars into our bakeries. And I'm going to tell you something, mister. We just had a meeting. And by Friday, all of our bakeries will have new chocolate chip cookies. We're changing the recipe. And I tell that story to people for two really important reasons. One is great executives don't complain about problems. They address them. This gets back to your thing on criticism. They know what is a real criticism and what's not. 
we had that cookie tasting we did, we had Girl Scouts do the tasting. So they knew <laughs> this was, we like to do that. Sometimes we have the pork council rate chicken or we'll have, um, right. we had Nats players rank hot dogs for us. <laughs> and But Girl Scouts weren't lying. They knew we were a trusted source. So uh, he as a great executive changed, you know, uh, he changed the recipe. But the second you know, far more important piece to this is that we have to get the small things right. People know a good chocolate chip cookie from a bad chocolate chip cookie. Everybody knows that, I think. I mean, it's, you know, pretty well known. You can test it for yourself. If we don't get that right, people are not going to believe us on lawyers and doctors and what's going on in Reston and whatever story we write about. So getting the small things right matter to keep the brand strong that's how our brand has been strong for very for a very long time when we say this is the number one restaurant in washington you you go there now you might say look i think this one number three is better than number one there to top there's a little bit of subjectivity at the very very top but it's not going to be not on your list it better be good we have our food critics for every restaurant we review they go there at least three times they don't go there the first month that it's open or first six weeks that it's opened. All the bloggers do their review that first week. We know, and people in the food industry know, is the first week can be amazing. If you bring Eric Rapar down from New York for your opening or whoever the celebrity chef is, it, it might be amazing. Other people, look, they're trying to get the kinks out. It's their opening night. They're slammed. It might not be so good. And so that isn't a good time to really test a a new restaurant you got to go multiple times after they've you know smoothed things out or the famous chef has left and so we try to get that right because people know a good restaurant from a bad restaurant as well yeah the community that you try to bring together under this umbrella is a very diverse community you're looking at a tri-state area that is both geographically diverse it's diverse in terms of what people do so demographically diverse like it's a real challenge how do you how do you do that how do you think about this notion of bringing this very large community together it's a great question um, because we have two states and a district we have therefore three local governments we have a federal government <laughs> we have business we have arts and society we have um, charities there's more nonprofit organizations in Washington DC than anywhere else in the world and we have a, a, a large journalism community it goes on and on, not to mention I think we have either the second or third largest um, college population in uh, the United States, next to Boston, and there, uh, there's arguments over who's number two, so I'm not, <laughs> not going to say. Uh, uh, I think we are. Um, we think of it as a giant Venn diagram, that each of these are circles of people, and people tend to know each other within their circle they tend the circles tend to overlap in cultural places okay that is both cultural and nonprofit organizations um, both on a national level let's say the kennedy center or um, i'm on the board of ford's theater you get overlap there if you volunteer at n street village or covenant house it helps the homeless or um, i don't know anyone who doesn't have some type of organization they support. We were volunteering at Capital Area Food Bank, uh, my boys and I, last weekend. This is where places tend to intersect and people tend to intersect. So we try to be there and we try to, with our events, 
um, have events that bring those communities together. Yeah. So our our Tech Titans event, which I referred to, the entrepreneurs know tend to know one another, and big money might know one another. We, are, if you look at our Tech Titan list, we have um, lobbyists that lobby on tech. We have journalists who cover tech. We have big, you know, VC money and that invests in tech here. We have established tech players. We have young startups. They love a place where they can come together because a lot of Washington is very siloed. Yeah, absolutely. And so we like to when they're not when there aren't cultural places that bring people together. We like to do that, and so when we see those disconnects, we do. Um, we do top doctors. We have a big event around doctors. Most doctors don't get to meet other people in their field. They work in their office. They know them through the phone, through referrals. But we believe, and I believe strongly, whether that's doctors or, or tech, good things happen for our community when people meet. And it really extends that whole notion of what it means to be a community. Yes, and I'm very involved. I'm on the board of the Board of Trade, the Economics Club, Federal City Council. These are also places where leaders come together in Washington. Yeah. We haven't talked about this, but I think it's a really interesting element of the story, and that is the history of Washingtonian Magazine itself. So it predates your family by a few years, but I think its its founding and creation is fascinating. It was founded by Laughlin Phillips. So for people in Washington who know the Phillips Gallery, that's the same the same family. He was a longtime CIA agent, an undercover agent. Uh, came back. The city and city magazines were just starting out in the country philly had taken their chamber magazine in uh, philadelphia and turned it into a magazine and he saw this uh this rise this beginning of um what was going to become city and regional magazines and so he he founded it um people thought that it was a front for aspiring because he had sort of come out of the cia and by then people knew and he was a very well-to-do uh a well-to-do man so some of the early issues it's sort of a you know if you find yourself in mozambique here's a good restaurant (laughs) which was not particularly local or helpful um but there's some really really fun um fun topics uh that he did the magazine however was not making money uh and so my father bought it from him he put that money into founding the phillips gallery so we sort of have a family joke that we should always have free access to the Phillips uh, <laughs> Phillips Gallery. <laughs> Kathy, talk about what perhaps has surprised you the most about yourself, or maybe what you've learned about yourself in taking on this role. Oh, that's such a good question, because I've managed people prior to this job in my other, in my, in my other careers and the other places I've worked. But the, um, I, I don't want to call it the burden, but um, the weight of ownership is very, is very surprising to me. And as a, as a woman as well, I'm going to say motherly instinct, but I know my, I know my friends who are, who are men who own companies feel this as well. Um, Maybe it's more parental. It's than more motherly. parental. Yeah the taking care of taking care of the people that work for you so the success of the magazine is um to me i don't think of it 
of, oh, we have to make a profit because I need money and I want to put money in my pocket. I think we have to make a profit because all these people have jobs here and their families depend on them and they like working here. And so this, the feeling of the people who work there and my responsibility to them has surprised me. I, I didn't know that coming in that that would be um, the thing that I carry with me 24-7, that I, I am responsible for the, these people, the, the people that work there. When you work somewhere else, there's always someone above you who is responsible. Once you're at the top, you realize, oh, no, it's all on me. Mm-hmm. Like, if, if we fail, I fail everyone here. Is that lonely? Um, it is. It can be very lonely. It is not lonely only because I have a very strong network of other CEOs um, in the region. So we're all kind of lonely together, if, yeah. <laughs> if you will. But that um, network is probably my best and most um, precious network. I belong to a group called YPO, Young Presidents Organization. It's a worldwide organization, and that has provided me um, great, great guidance and help and support. But at the end of the day, if you're the owner of a company, no one says to you, good job, ever. You never get a good job. And so you just have to get used to that. Early on, that was like, wait, I, I did this awesome thing. We had this great year. And I'd sort of look around, and it was like I'd pat myself on the back. Okay, we had a great year. Uh, over time, you, you, know, you get used to it. Yeah, yeah. Because this is a family business, because you have two young boys, they're, they're still very young, but how do you expose them to this notion of the company, the family business? Sort of what's your vision where they're concerned? Well, um, I tell them the same thing I grew up. Don't expect this coming your way. You have to make your own way in life. And the chance that they will love something that I love is very, very slim. 80% of second generation businesses fail. And so, um, because they just don't have the passion that the owner had. So I don't expect um, them to come in to the family business. That being said, they come into the office a lot. They know what we do in the office. They know that the people are there. I hope they know how hard I work. I get in early. I tend to stay late. They know that. Um, so I want them more than anything to, uh, to see the work ethic. So I care about that. But also what I was talking about before is uh, the responsibility that comes with it and that the people who work at Washingtonian, um, that is what puts food on our table. That's what gives us the, the life that we have. And so they should feel the gratitude toward the people that work there the way I feel that gratitude. Yeah. I know your parents were very humble people and very focused on giving back, very focused on their community. How do you work to keep your boys humble? I don't know any parent um, who feels comfortable in their lifestyle who doesn't worry about this for their children. Um, you know, we all, we all, we all worry about it. I make sure that. Uh, we volunteer. We have a family foundation. The kids, even since they were little, are involved in that. They under they, ha- they understand where we give, and why. Um, they understand that it's not just money that you have to go um, do things. 
but I also think it boils down to listening to them and when I hear something come out of their mouth that I find uh, sounds to me unappreciative or um, you know and, and, and not that they always know when they're saying something but to call them out on it and so calling them out not calling out the someone who has less but making sure they understand but I hope I, my boys are 13 and 14 and tough ages yeah <laughs> <laughs> it's tough ages they're teenage boys but um th that would be my if they if they grew up to be um not grateful I would I that would be the biggest disaster of my life I mean they should know gratitude and and hopefully they do yeah yeah because we are at the start of a new year, um, what about tips and advice for goal setting? Any practices that you engage in that you find particularly helpful or useful that you think people would be interested in? Um, years ago, there was a group of us here in Washington that would have New Year's Eve together every year. And um, I don't know how it started, but way back when, it started where everybody would get up and they would do two goals. So they would do a practical goal and an ideal goal. And I sort of still think that way. So a practical goal, I, I remember it's sort of the first time someone did it, we were in early 20s, someone stood up and said, my main goal is to stop going to other bank ATMs. I'm not going to pay that $2.25. <laughs> and I'm not going to do it. And because it used to be a bigger fee, I think, right. than there is now. Um, so I sort of think that way. Like if you if you want to if I want to lose weight or if I want to drink less Diet Coke or anything of that, that to me is my practical goal. And I have one of those every year. And then I have um, an ideal goal that can range from, um, uh, you know, make sure I'm measuring my gratitude and keeping a gratitude journal and, and holding it in my heart. Or it can be a, I need to do succession planning for the company or something of that level. I think of it in those two buckets. So Kathy, what's your advice for a young person who's aspiring to work for Washingtonian to actually sort of launch their career and do well in it. What do you what do you tell them? I think there's two things. The first is especially for a young person who's in their 20s is you have to work as hard as you can work and you have to work more than that. I tell my kids you get into work before your boss, you leave after your boss. Everyone wants balance in their life. I get it. You want to spend time with your friends. You want to go to the movies. You want to go hiking. But the ugly truth that people don't tell you is that your 20s are a time to work because well, if you want to take time off, the person at the desk next to you is going to work harder and they're going to work longer. Laura, I know the hours that you worked when you were in the White House. I worked similar hours I mean weekends everything if you get ahead further then when you really have something to balance when you have children when you have a spouse when you've been working hard for many years and you need a break you will have gotten further faster and you will have built up the equity to say I'm going to a parent-teacher conference I'm going to the play I'm coming back uh, later this afternoon it it, it is the truth of life is that you are competing at the with the people around you, and the way to get ahead is hard work. 
and the time to do that is in your 20s, so you can buy your balance. You can have balance in your 30s. The second thing I tell people, um, I love your friend Cheryl Sandberg and her advice about negotiating, but I think people have lost a little bit of nuance in this. You have to know your lane. If you want to come work at Washingtonian as a food critic, listen, you're not going to negotiate salary. If you don't take the salary I'm offering you, there's a thousand people in line behind you who want that job. Step aside, I'll take the next one. If you want to come in and be a salesperson or you want to be the head of sales, you have all the power in the world to negotiate because the world is one in one long search of great salespeople, people who can generate revenue, make businesses go. And so they have a lot of leverage to negotiate. So understand where you are before you implement the rules of negotiation. Yeah. How about one layer on top of that, which is... Women oftentimes negotiate differently or not at all (laughs) compared to their male counterparts. What do you see as it relates to that? Uh, I think it's true, but I think that um, it it is depends where you are on that totem pole. So at the upper end where you really have leverage, women do need to lean in. They need to know their value and they need to stick by their value. And so there I 100% agree with her. But if you are coming out of school, you don't really have the power or you're in a job that a lot of people want, get the job and then negotiate once you're in the job and you've established yourself as a star player. Yeah. How about this notion, too, back to your earlier point about really investing and working hard in your 20s so that you can invest and maybe have more flexibility later. But for women, sometimes we can put our heads down, work really hard, hoping that someone will notice the amazing job that we're doing without really focusing on how to think strategically about that job, our commitment where we're investing our time. So how do you get that balance right? (laughs) <laughs> I'm not sure if you get the balance. I think you have to learn faux humility so that you, <laughs> you, you, you do sometimes have to toot your own horn in a way that doesn't make you sound like a jerk to say, um, and, and I think men do this better than women, but say, hey, I'm really proud that this project came out so well. I put a lot in to making this come out, and I am proud how it came out. So I think there's a little of that. I also think... Um, People, people always know who did the work. Fundamentally, in my 20s, I, always, I, would, I worked so hard in my 20s, and I, and I was afraid that like, someone wouldn't know that I did all of this. And eventually, someone has a question, and then the <laughs> boss's boss's boss can't answer it. It gets kicked down, kicked down, kicked down. And the, the person at the bottom of the totem pole, you know, when I was starting out as, a, as an assistant and you know, all of this stuff, someone would ask. And I think that's true. You always find out who did the work. So if you put it in, it is going to be discovered. But it also helps if you give yourself a little bit of, uh, you know, if you talk. Um, but that leaves me with one other piece of advice or, or thought that I have that I got from my father, which he said, People underestimate how important relationships outside the office are. Always go to the softball game, even if you don't play softball. Go out for drinks after work. Go hang with people from work. Because people tell you things outside of the office that they would never dare raise inside the office. You learn 
who doesn't get along with who or maybe who gets along with who or an opportunity I had in my life when I was working for that large government contractor. A bunch of us went out for beers one night and one of the head guys was complaining about having to fly to Dallas to do some negotiations. And I, I, he never would have told me this. You know, I didn't have that much interaction with him. And I said, God, that's so fun, though. I love negotiating. It's something that I tend to be very good at. And uh, it's really fun. And then, you know, the next day he called me and he said, now you're going to headquarters and you're doing this <laughs> negotiating. And it gave me some visibility in a very large company. But doing stuff outside of the office um, not beyond friendships. It, it helps you understand what makes people tick. It helps you get ahead. Yeah. Any other advice as we start the new year? My piece of advice that I give to, to my children and to everyone who comes through Washingtonian, because I think that there are magic words that help people. And, and, and the magic words in life are, is there anything I can do for you? Those are the words that, um, you know, when, when I was in consulting, I, I got promoted five times in five years. I became youngest partner in a worldwide firm. And I started on the secretarial staff. And all I did was go around to people and say, is there anything I can do for you? If you say it to your spouse, if you say it to your parents, if you say it to a coworker, if you say it to a manager, is there anything I can do for you? It will change the world. And I, if I speak sometimes to high school kids, I say, go home tonight. And after dinner, when you're cleaning up, say to your parents, is there anything I can do for you? And I promise you, they'll just have a heart attack and die on the spot. because <laughs> Of happiness. <laughs> of happiness. <laughs> because nobody says that out of nowhere. But um, I actually interned at Washingtonian one summer in college. And it was before we had computers. I, I tell them that, I tell the interns that. And I don't think we were a better generation. I think this generation is a better, smarter generation. I feel that very, very strongly, even with all the knocks on millennials and the next, you know, why they are. But they can also really, really get sucked into the computer, the web, Twitter, all of this. We got bored. And we got bored. We had to get out of our chair, walk around the office, and say to people, is there anything I can do for you? When you do that, you establish a relationship with someone. So if you want to get ahead at work, it's not that hard. That is the way to get ahead at work, is just go around to people. And even if you have no extra time and you're working your butt off, find extra time. Work weekends, work late, work night. The responsibility will flow to you. You will get promoted. And, you know, your life will be headed in the right direction with those simple words. Is there anything I can do for you? It's fantastic. Kathy, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Oh, so I loved fun. it. I really loved it. To learn more about Kathy, check out the show notes where I will include links to the Washingtonian, Washingtonian media, as well as a few photos from our visit today. You'll find all of our insightful, inspiring She Said, She Said guests, like Kathy, wherever you download the podcast or on our website at www.shesaidshesaidpodcast.com. And if you're enjoying these conversations, please help me spread the word and share them with others. And if there are topics that you especially enjoy or that you want to hear more of, let me know that too. You can contact us on the contact link on the website. And as always, thanks so much for listening and for being part of this growing community of amazing women.